hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Want to quit your budget? Want to stop hating your debt? We're joined this week by money expert and prolific money writer, Dana Miranda, to talk about why you don't need a budget and why you can actually maybe like your debt. (laughs) You're listening to Queer Money episode 412, and today we're breaking free from debt shaming and budget culture. So let's get on with the show. You're listening to the Queer Money Podcast, personal finance with a rainbow twist. Queer Money is dedicated to financial independence, financial well-being, investing knowledge, and the intersection of all things money as an LGBTQ person. Queer Money is made possible by Capital One. Capital One believes that financial well-being includes your mental, physical, and financial health. Check out CapitalOne.com today. So welcome to the prolific Dana Miranda of the Queer Money Podcast. We're excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Wonderful. And you got some hot takes on budgeting so and debt. So I can't wait to dive into this and see if we align it all in our in our opinions. But when we originally first started talking, you said you wanted to talk about budget culture. And I was like, what is budget culture? So that's my first question. What is budget culture? <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that opening. So budget culture is the name that I've given to just the prevailing way that we talk and teach about money in our culture. It's kind of what I see as like the personal finance side of a capitalist economic system. So it's really focused on individual responsibility, kind of discipline, restriction, perfectionism, a lot of these characteristics that you see connected with capitalism of like patriarchy and white supremacy that kind of filter down into the ways that we think and teach and talk about money in our culture. And it relies on, like I mentioned, restriction in how we spend money and also shaming in of our decisions and especially shaming of the debt that we take on. Yeah, that was going to be my my follow-up question. The other thing that we talked about before the show was the shaming of debt and the anti-shaming of debt seems to be something that's growing a little bit more prevalent, especially on personal finance, social media discussions, predominantly on Twitter is where I'm seeing it. Where do you think the origination of the debt shaming started? And why do you think we're now sort of seeing a shift in personal finance, specifically, maybe not financial services, but personal finance to the anti-debt shaming? I can't say for sure where it started because I'm sure it was long before this, but as far as with my generation as a millennial, I know that Dave Ramsey has had a huge impact on the way that a lot of people feel about debt. A lot of people start their personal finance journey through Dave Ramsey products and books and learning. And he's sort of the king of debt shaming. It's sort of, he's very famous for saying, if you have debt, you should never see the inside of a restaurant unless you work there, which is all all kinds of layers of shaming and classism and things that are really unfortunate. But that kind of attitude of like, if you have any debt, your job is to repay debt. And so you should not be spending money on anything else is really at the heart of debt shaming. And I think it's just tied to the kind of bootstraps mentality that we have in the United States and the individualistic mentality that we have here, the individual responsibility that's really tied up in budget culture and capitalism in general. So I think it's just sort of easier for us to put all of that blame and shame on an individual Mm -hmm. than to look at sort of the systemic forces that might be putting people into that situation. I'm thinking the change in, in the conversation comes from just not feeling good about feeling shamed, you know, for our debt as personal finance sort of throughout maybe the 80s and 90s became more of a popular conversation. We were able to talk about individuals a little bit more than just like the ultra rich was sort of where the financial conversation was. As we started talking about it, it started with that kind of debt shaming. And I think we realized that we don't really like that. It doesn't feel good. Psychology has really shown that shaming is not a great motivator, especially in the long term. It might change your behavior in the short term. It might make you deceptive. 
it might, you know, make you sort of maybe lie to yourself or lie to others about your behavior because you don't want to feel that shame, but it doesn't really motivate us to change in the long term because it doesn't really tap into the right things. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that's so interesting about this idea of the debt shame is that because of the shaming and not the open conversations around what causes it, systemic issues that may bring it on, or societal norms that are, that bring on debt has caused a lot of people to hide their, their financial situation, not only from their family members, their spouses, their circle of friends, but like you said, even sometimes from them, themselves, they we kind of stick our head in the sand and well, we know the result of sticking your head in the sand. Either you pull it out and have to deal with the, what's going on around you, or you mm-hmm. run out of breath and you die. And so one, it's either face the, face the reality or a tragic situation. And I don't think that's a comfortable conversation anyone really wants to have. Yeah, absolutely. And And that's what I did for years. I think that if you can't deal with your debt or you don't know how to deal with your debt because you don't know what your options are, sticking your head in the sand feels like the easiest and the best move to do because you can't just go through your life constantly, you know, barraged with the shame or stress or guilt or whatever it is. And so you want to just not think about it. Yeah. yeah absolutely. And you maybe have heard, or we've talked about the death spiral, right? This kind of this downward spiral that can happen with we feel this shame or we feel this anxiety around our personal situation. And then what do we do? We want to make that go away. And the easiest way to do that is to pull out the credit card and or the debit card and spend money, in some cases, money that we don't have to make those feelings go away, but they just come right back, right? And right. sometimes it's it's confronting the issues in a genuine, honest, and and kind of in a vulnerable way, right? We have to get vulnerable to deal with our person, with our own personal story when it comes to money. We have to have those feelings and address them. Absolutely. And not doing that, I think, is what causes kind of what you were describing, which is you think what you need to do as a solution is like pull out the credit card and buy something. And that's tied to, you know, a whole other sort of trend of consumerism and and materialism and marketing. And again, sort of tied back to capitalism, it all kind of comes down to. But if you really take the time to do that more kind of inner work, that can really benefit your relationship with money overall is is kind of understanding yourself. And if you can couple that with the understanding of the systemic forces then, and just sort of the understanding of like how our financial systems and products and processes work, you can let go of that shame and then make decisions just from a more neutral place. And I think that's where the conversation with debt is going, is this idea of debt is morally neutral. That's a really important thing for people to hear and understand so that you don't feel like you have to hide from it or hide it from other people, that you can just survey the land a little bit, the landscape in front of you and understand what your situation is, and then just make a decision for the next step for you. Right. Do you feel, I mean, David and I have never talked about this. And as you're talking, I'm wondering if, you know, we, uh, our, our backstory is that we amassed $51,000 in credit card debt and finally had that come to Jesus moment about a year and a half after we got together. Do you feel, David, that there were systemic reasons why you or we acquired debt? I mean, obviously we're cis white men, so we have a very narrow perspective of that experience. So I'm just, but I'm just curious, I, I don't know if I if I think that there were systemic issues in in the financial system or in the economy that caused me to acquire debt, but I've never really thought about it. I've always just felt like it was my fault. And so I, you know, so I'm wondering if this is an opportunity for us to think about things a little bit differently. Do you, I mean, I'm putting you on the spot. This is brand new. (laughs) Have you, do you think maybe there's an element of systemic oppression that sort of helped you acquire your portion of the debt? I don't necessarily think that on a financial level there was, you know, we've talked about this so many times before. I think that the societal Yes. Pressures that we dealt with, those can, I think, contributed to us wanting to prove to everybody else that we were better than what they thought we were as gay men growing up or show to the 
other gay men in our circle of friends that we were good enough for them to be hanging out with because we had the designer jeans and the nice vacations and all that kind of stuff. I think that those are kind of the, some of the systemic things that kind of we can adopt or use as reasons why we might. I love that you are asking that question and especially kind of on the spot too. I love watching that. But um, the struggle, you like watching him suffer. But no, the reflection. I can do it again. The, the introspection. <laughs> <laughs> no, I never want. I never want money to be a struggle for anyone. <laughs> but the introspection I do love is just thinking about like how have these other things impacted how we use money and and our relationship with money. But I think that David's exactly right that it's more of the cultural forces that that you guys have talked about a lot of the kind of higher cost of living often for. LGBT people. And you can, I think, take that to an even higher level, though, and see that there are systemic forces that have created an LGBTQ culture by othering people who identify within our community. That that's not a that's not a natural thing that's created by systemic forces that have an interest in, you know, keeping us as separate. And there's a reason that we've had to create safe spaces for ourselves. And we were talking about before the recording, why maybe we live in more expensive communities and more expensive cities and things mm. that give us a higher cost of living. And for a lot of people, there's also are also dealing with lower pay and maybe credit discrimination and things that make debt more expensive, that make them need to take on debt more just to afford living and make it harder than to repay that debt. So there are a lot of things kind of involved even just for the LGBTQ community. Capital One strives to inspire a better financial path for everyone, including the LGBTQ plus community, through access to credit, tools to manage debt, and product features. Digital products such as CreditWise and Eno are designed to take the stress out of money by helping you manage credit, a key source of potential stress, and stay on top of spending without worrying all the time. Sign up for CreditWise for free today. Yeah, I think it's something for me, maybe the two of us need to start thinking about because I haven't thought about that a whole lot. But as as Burton this is continuing, I'm thinking about that new Amazon commercial where that high school student girl she has a mustache, right? And there are elements of it that I love, right? The music and the that she buys an outfit that you know a queen outfit, all the you know, David Bowie music and all that kind of stuff. There's elements that that I love, and I love the empowerment of it toward the end. But what I struggle with is that. The whole commercial is about she has to go on Amazon and buy these shoes and this jacket to sort of replicate this queen outfit. And then she can go to school. And it's because she bought this stuff that she now has the confidence to go to school and not be ashamed of her mustache. And it's kind of like I, I element of it that I like about it, but there's an element that I like. I'm concerned like this is just encouraging LGBTQ people or reinforcing that it's based on the stuff that we have that validates who we are and makes us as good or maybe even better than the people who are ridiculing us at school. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a really good example of companies kind of co-opting those cultural values that we have. And it happens so quickly as soon as we say like we are going to be gender affirming, or we're going to kind of, we're going to rewrite the rules of of fashion or beauty or whatever it is, right? Then a, a company is there to kind of swoop in and say like, here's how we can monetize that. Here's how we can sell you something to get that feeling as a little bit of a shortcut. And what they don't tell you is probably temporarily <laughs> rather yeah. than learning sort of self-acceptance, examining why in the culture, it's a problem for a teenage girl to have a mustache you know, that kind of thing. It's There's a lot deeper work that we have to do that's a little bit harder than buying something on Amazon, which I have turned to many times. As <laughs> You're I here. Just, yeah. just moved into a new Amazon house. Amazon is a great yeah. Friday night, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. trying, to, trying to deal with that discomfort. <laughs> Absolutely. So what do you, in your opinion, do you think is missing from the general debt management advice that, that we see in the personal finance and media space? So what I really like to talk about and I've mentioned it a couple of times is the sort of how the processes and products work so that people understand their options a little bit better. I see a lot of good debt payoff advice. It's sort of different debt payoff methods. You have promoted one that I think is very smart and works for a lot of people. 
that's another place where I think Dave Ramsey really clicked smart. with people. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I'll, I'll give it to you. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I always like to see kind of different takes on that. And again, like I said, Dave Ramsey kind of popularized the debt snowball method that then people have really riffed on that makes debt payoff feel accessible for people if they have the funds to put towards it. But I like to talk sort of beyond debt payoff if that's not your number one priority. And I don't think that it has to be. So I want to talk more about how different debt products work so that you understand the consequences of holding different kinds of debt and you understand your options, whether that's paying it off or getting a different kind of you know, repayment plan or letting the interest accrue. And what does that mean for your finances and your credit score and things like that? Just being able to make intentional decisions about your debt. And I think the conversation about debt, even as we move into the stance of debt being morally neutral, is still very focused on debt payoff as your number one goal. And that's not the right goal for everyone. And it's not accessible for everyone at the time, you know, that they're getting that advice. Right. So we did an episode a couple of months back. I, I should have looked it up before we did this interview where we calculated, you know, should you pay off your debt or should you keep your debt? And basically the break-even point that we came to is aligned with Fidelity and a couple other resources is that um, you've got your your high interest debt, and then you've got your low mm-hmm. interest debt. And and mathematically speaking, it makes sense to focus on the high interest debt and not get too consumed with the low interest debt because you can probably offset that by investing in the market or some other source of, of, of growth. Is that sort of what you're talking about? Or are you talking more about aligning your debt payoff plan or whether you're going to adopt a debt payoff plan more, more with your personal life goals and objectives? Both of those and kind of all of it. So it's, again, looking at those more nuances of where money plays out in your life, because it's about more than just the numbers. So you might be looking at high interest credit card debt versus mortgages are usually like the lowest interest debt that you can have. But not paying off your credit card debt means low credit score and some interest, you know, more debt, but not paying off your mortgage means possibly losing your home. So there's a lot more to take into account than just the numbers there. Student loan debt, I think is a really interesting one as well, because a lot of people really pride themselves on paying off their student loan debt, doing being debt-free. That's a big one often. And I've really let my student loan debt ride quite a bit, even though I know that other than for the last couple of years, it's been building with interest because all of my student loan debt is federal debt. It's a very safe kind of debt for me to hold. It's not hurting my credit score. I'm not accumulating fees. I'm staying on an income-driven repayment plan. And that is keeping me in good standing with the debt. And it fits into the resources that I have available monthly because it's, you know, it's the amount that I owe is driven by my income. So there are a lot of those kind of nuances about your debt to take into consideration that I think a lot of people aren't aware of, especially with something like student loans. But a lot of people also aren't aware of even things with credit cards, like how refinancing works and what that might mean for your credit score or how going to collection works, what that means for your debt, for your credit score, for you know your obligation to that debt. Understanding those things can help you then make an intentional decision. Like, is it worth it for me to put my resources towards paying off this debt, given that I will have to give up something else that I might otherwise spend it on. I think that we need to weigh all of those things, not just the impact of having debt. Mm -hmm. The word debt and the word budget, they both have gotten kind of become, become kind of almost negative words, right? They have a very, very negative connotation to them. Pejoratives. I'm curious if... Similar to the word queer, prior to the mid-1900s, early 1900s, the word queer did not have an association to people in general, a group of people in general. It just meant that things were different outside of societal norms or just looked different, right? And then all of a sudden in the 1900s, it became this word that we adopted as that is what those people are. They're queer. And that's when it got that kind of negative Do you think that similar to the way that we're kind of reclaiming the word, 
that we as individuals need to do the same, maybe go through the same kind of process with, with budget and with debt in that I know that these are, for lack of a better way of saying it, these are tools, these are things that exist in the world that we live in today. And I need to learn how to use them to my, or use those words in an empowering way for myself and my financial circumstances and let everybody else deal with those words the way that they do, they want to. I love that. I'm all for, I kind of like to play around with semantics. And so I do love the idea of reclaiming a word. I also like to just talk about things that, you know, people might use in the pejorative in a neutral way without even necessarily addressing it or saying we're reclaiming this or whatever. I just talk about having debt as a neutral event in the same way that businesses often do, right? Like it's it's really something that you can use as a tool to have the experience that you want. And that is the way that some people teach about debt, but they often only do that for people who already have a lot of money or privilege. Mm-hmm. And we should really be teaching that in the same way to everyone and not deciding who is worthy of using debt as a resource. So I think, yeah, I love that idea of of reclaiming it. Budget, I think, could be done in the same way. I've become really sticky with budget because I liken it a lot to diet and budget culture is you know, a lot like diet culture and really associate that word with restriction and discipline. But there really is just kind of a core, kind of the same as you were talking with the word queer, that there really is just sort of a a basic meaning, which is just the resources available to you. And, you know, if we could reclaim it and use it that way, I would, I would go back to it. <laughs> yeah. Tori Dunlap says in her book, Financial Feminist, we just had her on the podcast recently. I never thought about it this way, but the way we, we use debt, we use it differently based on your socioeconomic class. If you're, if you're poor for, can't try to keep it simple. If you're poor, then it's debt and debt is bad. If you're wealthy, then debt is actually leverage and leverage is good because leverage can be used to make you wealthier. I never really had it put in the, heard it put in those terms before, but it, it was very striking the way that she wrote that. And then I thought, geez, I wonder what would happen to people if even if you do fall under the poor category, if you thought of your debt as a way to actually help you in a more positive manner, it isn't it wasn't so negative. For example, for David and me, as soon as we kind of had this confession, it was like, okay, we got to get rid of this stuff and we got to get rid of this stuff as fast as possible. And I'm also now wondering, like, was that sort of societal pressure that put that on us or was that actually something that we adopted on our own, you know, out of our own agency? But I just love the idea. Maybe we can kind of twist that a little bit. Maybe debt isn't so bad. Maybe that's the reason for that is because it is so ubiquitous now than maybe it was even 10, 15 years ago. But if flipping that switch, turning it from a pejorative to a positive might help people look at it differently, feel better about themselves, then maybe they would feel a little bit more empowered to do something about it if that's what they choose to do. Absolutely. And I like to talk about debt as part of your resources debt that you can take on. So, you know, you've got when you're sort of looking, making your money plan, you often people are just looking at what's your earned income every month. And I think there are a lot of other resources that we have available to us that don't require necessarily our earned income. And debt resources, I think are a really important one. If I have access to student loans to go to school again, or a student loan refund to help me pay for living expenses so that I don't have to work and earn income while I go to school. If I have access to my credit card credit limit, I can keep that in the back of my mind, right? But then again, that's understanding the consequences of that debt. Do I want to max out my credit card? And what does that mean for my financial plan? So yeah, I like to think of it as a resource, again, in the same way that rich people and businesses often think of debt as a resource. Many businesses get off the ground starting with debt by leveraging debt. And we can allow people to do the same thing by helping them understand their options with debt and not letting it just sort of control them and and bury them. Sure. Yeah. So what's your advice for people on dealing with their debt? If say I've got student loan debt, 
you know, know, $50,000 in student loan debt, $20,000 in credit card debt. How would you suggest somebody deal with or or manage that from this anti-debt shaming, anti-budget culture sort of perspective? So we talked about it earlier, but the first thing I would say is don't ignore it because that might be your instinct. When I was in my 20s and I had at the time, $50,000 in student loan debt. I ignored it for many years because I knew I couldn't make the monthly payment on the standard payment plan that was expected of me, but I didn't know what my other options were. So I just didn't even look into it until this wonderful woman from the financial aid office called me and said, you know, you can consolidate this and you can get on a, a payment plan. And, you know, so just somebody telling me that, letting me know that information was really helpful. So I didn't have to ignore it anymore. So know what you have. And then I think I mentioned this before to sort of get that lay of the land. So know what debts you carry. You were kind of mentioning that if I have this, you know, if I have this much in this kind of debt and this kind of debt, know who holds it. Since you guys are repping Capital One, I think CreditWise is a Capital One product that'll show you essentially your credit score and I think your credit history too. So use a product like that can make it really simple. You can you also have access to your free credit report from annualcreditreport.com, which is very helpful, but is kind of an official like wonky document that might be hard to read. The apps make it a little bit easier to translate and understand what it means for you and can be really good at adding some context to that too. So that lets you know who even holds your debt. So I've had debt in collections that I didn't know, you know, I didn't know who even to contact if I had questions about that, right? Like, what do I do about it? And that can tell you who that is. So then you have kind of a path to go down so you can figure out if you want to negotiate with them or you want to pay it off or whatever it is. So start there. Don't be afraid of it. Letting go of that shaming then makes it a little bit easier to see whatever that report is. It makes it easier to see what that number is because you don't have to judge yourself then by that number. You can just look at it and know that you have all the information you need to then make changes and and make moves where you have any kind of control or influence to do that. And then, like I mentioned, know the consequences of carrying each of those kinds of debts. So once you know that you have those debt, look into, if I don't pay this off, what is going to happen? And, and make sure you kind of understand that. Do a little research for yourself, you know, give yourself kind of a like a little debt map so you understand what is going to happen if you don't pay each of those off. So then you can prioritize. That is sort of the debt payoff method that a lot of people talk about is figuring out like what is the highest interest debt. Often you want to pay that off first because if you don't, it means you're going to accumulate more and more debt. I would just take it a step further beyond those numbers and just understand what are the consequences? Like, can you, if it, if something goes to debt collections, is it going to ruin your life to be dealing with calls from debt collectors all the time? Or is that, is that something that's easy for you to ignore until you can have a settlement with them or something? There are just sort of understand what that might look like for you. And there's a ton of information through podcasts like this and and tons of information online where people can sort of walk you through all of that information so you can make informed decisions. And then from there, know your options for dealing with the debt because different kinds of debt have different repayment options or deferment options or settlement options or whatever it is. Different kinds of debt you might be able to get rid of in bankruptcy, some you can't. So know how you can deal with that debt to live with it in your life or get it out of your life or you know, kind of deal with it in whatever way makes the most sense for you. Gotcha. So basically what I'm hearing you saying is that all debt isn't the same. So do your homework, research what it is, who has it, how it affects your finances today, and how it could affect your finances down the road, whether you pay it off or you don't pay it off at all. Yeah, absolutely. Don't be afraid of it. And I would also then say, don't be afraid of lenders and credit card companies too. I think that's another reason that people sort of bury their head in the sand about debt because they will play a lot of, and debt collection companies as well, they'll play a lot of dirty tricks to really intimidate you into giving them money in some way. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to regulate that. And they often are able to get around regulations or they just ignore them altogether because it's hard to, hard to stay on top of. So we just kind of individually need to have a little bit of fortitude against that and know that you can stand up against them and you can 
by understanding how their products work, you can then make them work for you. Yeah, it's going to sound a little cheesy here, but it's kind of that whole, the more you know, you know, and you see the star go across the sky, right? I mean, it's this, Absolutely. it is the, the more you understand how these tools work, or you understand the options that you have when you're in a particular situation, the more confidence you have. And, and that's, I think that the more you know, the more you're able to make informed decisions that are helpful to you rather than uninformed decisions that eh, may or may not be helpful for you, right? And the more often than not, when we make uninformed decisions, we rarely get lucky with those ones and, and actually are there, they are helpful. Absolutely. And I think this has been your experience as well. And it was my experience of coming into the personal finance space. I was very, I was a blank slate. I didn't, I came in as a writer and I didn't know anything really about personal finance and learned everything. I had the privilege of learning everything by just working as a journalist in personal finance eight hours a day. So I was able to kind of get this like masterclass in how to deal with my own money and how to understand it. And I want to give that to other people as much as possible. I want to help people understand. But I would say, if you don't have the privilege of spending 40 hours a week doing that, to focus your questions on how things work rather than asking questions about what should I do next? Because there are always going to be people who will tell you what you should do next, but they don't know you. So they don't know what's best for you. So instead of searching for what is the best debt payoff method, you know, find out how your student loans work, how your credit card debt works, that kind of thing. I guess we'll stop trying to target that keyword. Yeah. And I, I think that's, <laughs> yeah, I think that's why it's important. And we've mentioned this before that you find a voice in personal finance that you resonate with, right? Because maybe their experiences align with your experiences or their their life experiences are something that you find you align with. And so it makes you, it makes their progress inspires you or helps you see that you can do the same thing and make changes and improve. That's why I'm glad that there are more people than Susie Orman and Dave Ramsey, right? I mean, it used to yes. be that there were only two or three voices. And now we have literally thousands of voices in the personal finance space that is beneficial because especially for queer folks, we're starting to see more and more queer folks in the personal finance space. And we need those voices because even with our own community, we have so many different different lived experiences and we need to highlight those so that people in our community can hear those. Absolutely. And that's why I'm so glad that queer money exists, the work that you all are doing for the community. And I also think we need queer voices in, you know, personal finance for the masses as well, because we need that, those varied ex perspectives so that we can all benefit from them. But it is important, like you said, to find a voice that we can connect with because you're going to be able to connect with somebody's experience in a way that, that kind of mainstream personal finance advice might not, especially when it's just trying to cast a wide net and really say sort of the most basic thing. Like mm -hmm. we talked about earlier, LGBTQ people often moving to more expensive cities because that's where we know we can find an affirming community and then struggling with the cost of living and having whatever financial problems come along with that. And it might be really easy for a straight guy kind of personal finance guru to say, move out of the city and go live somewhere cheaper. <laughs> but they don't have the perspective and the and the really visceral understanding of what it means to be in a community that's unsafe or not affirming of your identity. And so it's important to have queer voices in the space or to at least have a queer space where we can talk about money safely and understand those issues. Yeah, I, I think so. The segue into the into the queer discussion, I think we kind of are all in agreement of the similarities that many of us in the community have with the acquisition of debt. What challenges, unique challenges, do you see for LGBTQ people who are in the pursuit of paying off debt that is unique relative to the general population? Do you see any uniqueness there? Absolutely. And it's different. You know, everyone's experience is different because, like you mentioned, David, the, the experiences in this community are very varied and vast. But we do know that LGBT people, on average, are earning 
less money than the general population, about 90 cents to the dollar. And then of course that breaks down by race and, and gender identity and becomes a lot more extreme and scary. The people who are living in poverty in the LGBT community. So that makes it harder. That makes it probably more likely that you'll accumulate debt to Mm -hmm. pay for the cost of living and then also much harder to pay off. But there's also always competing priorities for anyone when you're paying off debt. And queer and trans people might have some unique life expenses that the general population does not face around family planning, which can be a lot more expensive to take on gender affirming care, which is something that a lot of cis people aren't dealing with that can cost thousands or tens of thousands of dollars for people and saving up for that or affording it can really compete with a debt payoff goal. And on its surface from a personal finance expert, you might think you might hear that paying off debt is more important than what is considered just kind of a big expense. But of course, in that individual's experience, putting that money into family planning or gender affirming care can be a lot more important than dealing with debt or, you know, or your personal finances on, on that other side. So those competing priorities are, can be challenging, especially because a lot of the advice that we're hearing doesn't take them into account. Right. And then going back to what you said earlier, still understand your debt know how it's affecting you now and in the future so that when you're making those decisions about family planning or gender affirming care or whatever Mm -hmm. unique variable that you have because you are a part of the lgbtq plus community you understand everything when you make your decision of what you're going to focus on where your priority is going to lie absolutely yeah if you're sitting on credit card debt what can you do to maybe make that debt less of a burden could you refinance it so that even if you're leaving it sitting with a lower interest rate. Could you, if you're a student, could you take out student loans and maybe pay off some credit card debt with that? Because that's a much safer form of debt that you could hold for a while while you're dealing with other needs in your life. So yeah, understand that so that you can make those money moves to make debt feel safe and satisfying for you in your life so that you can have the experience that you want. I think also it might be like the direction that you're taking this, it also might be helpful then later on down the line when we do have to confront that, to confront it with the understanding that, yes, this is something I I have to face now, but I, you know, similar to going out to dinner and I order something and you order something and I get it and you, and then all of a sudden I'm jealous that you have what you have, but I ordered this, right? Well, that's mm-hmm. not necessarily the, the way that works, right? I mean, when we make those kind of financial and life decisions, we don't say, I wish I wouldn't have made that decision. I would have made the other one. The reality is, is I made this decision. Now I have to make decisions about what I'm confronted with today. And that may help with the not feeling the shame and guilt around having that debt because you knew, you knew you made the decision to delay it because there were other more important decisions that you needed to make in your life at that time. Absolutely. And that's a a tough ask of a lot of people, but that's sort of what I encourage is moving towards this place of mindfulness and kind of self-awareness so that it's easier to make those decisions and feel secure in them. There's so much in our culture telling us that everything that we're doing is wrong. And especially as queer people, there's so much in in our culture telling us that everything we're doing is wrong. And so when that then gets tied up with money and the shame that we're told is sort of normal around a lot of financial decisions, that can be really tough. But so it requires a lot of kind of mindset work and and mindfulness and self-awareness to be able to tap into your intuition and use that to make your financial decisions so that you know at every point you're making the decision that's right for you so that as you move forward, then you're able to just make the next decision and not look back with regret, regardless of how it aligned with what the culture told you you maybe should have been doing. Sure. So Let's touch on that a little bit. When you say be a little bit more mindful, are you talking about what we just discussed already? Like do your homework, understand how all your finances and the variables are affecting you. So, and then be a little bit easier on yourself because you've got to make some sort of decision or another and, 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 and own up to that. Or are you talking about 
a deeper level of, of, of mindfulness work? Again, both. I like to think a lot more about that deeper level of mindfulness work because I think that it sort of takes care of a lot of the rest of it. So getting out of personal finance entirely and just thinking about like a mindfulness practice of some kind that can really impact the way that you behave and the beliefs that you have in life in general. And that has a really positive impact on your relationship with money. I say that as a general thing. I should say personally, that has had a very positive impact on my relationship with money. And I can see the benefits for it so that you're not looking outside of yourself for the right answers because you're often just going to get those sort of high level general casting a wide net kind of rules. But if you look inside yourself and tap again into your intuition a little bit more, then you can know what is right for you. When it comes to money though, it's also important to have that understanding of how the products work, how the processes work, and the sort of math behind it that is also talked about because you can only make a decision so far as you know what decisions are available to you. You do have to understand your options. You can follow your intuition you know, as far as it'll take you. And I would say then hopefully you still won't look back with regret, but it's very helpful to really understand the consequences of any of those decisions and to understand all of the options available to you so that you're, as you're listening to your gut, you sort of have well-informed gut. <laughs> so it knows kind of which decisions it's leading you to. You need good gut health. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I'm wondering, do you have any specific mindfulness practices or exercises that you can share that maybe you've used or you've heard about have been successful? with people in there, I guess we're talking about money stories. For me, a really good place to start was yoga. I think a lot of people kind of dip their toes into a kind of, it's sort of meditation adjacent because you're getting this sort of bodily awareness as you're doing yoga, but it can still, you can still focus. It can still sort of feel like an exercise routine, which is something we're a little bit more familiar with and feels a little bit more typical to do. So I think that's a great place to start. It helps you kind of quiet your mind and listen to the things that your kind of body is telling you. And then meditation is another great step. There are a lot of meditation apps you can pay for or things you can get for free or YouTube videos you can watch online with guided meditations where you can just sit for like 10 minutes Anytime you think you need it, you can build a practice to do it every day or, you know, do it when it feels convenient, like just start and try it out and see how it feels. Even just a little bit of that sort of guided meditation or mindfulness practice guides you to kind of start to sense those things and to start to trust what you're hearing from yourself. Those are two really kind of simple things you can do. I'm also a writer, so I like journaling. So I always encourage that. Any kind of just free writing journaling practice, I think is really great for introspection, especially if you do it for a while, you can get yourself kind of in that flow. But I even think like if you're really kind of on a personal finance journey, a spending diary for a while can be great or just a money diary in general, not just to keep a ledger of how much money you're spending. The numbers really aren't that important to me, but write down sort of where you're spending money, what you got out of it, maybe who was involved, how it felt, and how you think it'll impact your finances. Start to get a little bit deeper into your relationship with money and reflect on how your money moves day to day are making you feel so that you can start to, on reflection, kind of understand what seems right for you that can really help you then as you go forward before you make the decision to understand what makes sense for you. Yeah, I, yeah, I love that. I, I love this idea of what you're talking about here. We talk about spending trackers and doing a spending analysis mm -hmm. and, and all of that. But I think one of the things we leave out of it is the, how did I feel or do I feel about the money that I spent? And that will help inform where you get the most value out of your money, right? I mean, it, it, it's a lot of fun to go and drop $100 on brunch, right? And drink the bottomless mimosas and all of that. And I'm not judging it because I love, I mean, we both love doing that. 
but um, <laughs> but if you find that that's that that's something that after you journal about it you you find that what was i really looking for i'm looking for that social interaction with my friends mm-hmm. then that's what you value and then you can say to yourself okay where how do i spend my money in the in the way that i get the most value because maybe then spending it on something else doesn't make that you have that kind of it doesn't give you that value and you know where to shift to your money too one of the things that i was thinking about when we were i knew we were going to be talking about this whole idea of budget culture and there is that idea of the the yes or the no budget depends on who you're talking to as Mm -hmm. to how individuals refer to it but the kind of budget where you make sure that your primary your your commitments are taken care of your your expenses and your your bills and your necessities but after that it's spend it on whatever you want to spend it on because that does give you the opportunity to say yes if you're going to have a budget like that it's really important to know mm-hmm. and keep maybe keep keeping track of where it is that i'm actually really enjoying spending my money and getting the most value out of it and where i'm not and then you can dedicate more of your money to that which i think is probably one of the reasons why you have a, a end up having a happier or more fulfilling life with the money that you spend. Yeah, absolutely. I that's exactly what I encourage is that kind of reverse budgeting which isn't really a budget it, the way I see it because it doesn't have that restriction, it doesn't require you to track every dollar, kind of all the things that are like really difficult about budgeting, but it just lets you have sort of a balance with your finances. And I would take it a step further too because often in budget culture, we focus on that spending bucket, regardless of sort of how we get to it. But if you take care of your commitments and your goals and you're, and you, you know, you're dealing with things like your debt and your bills and expenses, and that bucket doesn't look the way that you want it to, and you're not able to have the experiences you want, look at your finances as a whole. So look at the ways that you can change your commitments, look at the ways that you might adjust your goals if those are not important to you as well, don't only focus on how you might shift your spending around. We tend to sort of focus the responsibility on that day-to-day spending or the kind of discretionary spending, but there's so much other stuff about your finances that you have control or influence over that a lot of times we don't focus on. We just sort of see like bills as this unchangeable expense. And I think you can you can uncommit to that in whatever way makes sense for you. Again, you can look at your resources and whatever influence you have over your income, make those changes, but then also look at alternatives like government resources, community resources, and debt resources, if that makes sense for you, so that you can, as a whole, have the financial picture that makes sense for you. I appreciate your saying that because sometimes some of those larger expenses, I think about mortgages and car payments, especially, those amounts or those the what is spent is is sometimes not necessarily our decision right we are told okay this is how much you can afford based on your income this is what you can spend and we just make that as the line in the sand okay well they told me i can get a $450,000 mortgage i'm going to get a $450,000 mortgage was that the right choice for me I don't know, but that's what they told me I could spend. So I spent that. Or I was told that my car payment could be $550 a month. So I have a $550 a month car payment, right? And so we sometimes make those choices based on the information that other people know about our lives rather than the information we know about our lives. And sometimes it might be that we want to unravel some of those decisions and think about how do we get back to or put ourselves in a position where we make the best decision for ourselves? Absolutely. And getting back to making a decision based on what you know for yourself, part of what's really important about that, again, is understanding what's going on in the process. So if you're, I just, I recently wrote a piece for Business Insider about getting my first mortgage and really realizing how no one in that process is there to educate me on how to make the right decision for me. Even if I worked with a financial planner, they're not an expert on how mortgages work. So there's no one that I can turn to, to 
make that decision on what is the right amount of mortgage for me to take out, right? What should that number be? And so you do have to figure that out for yourself using some other information. And it's so easy when we get into these, we kind of get slotted into these systems and we just get pulled along by what works for the system itself, which is, you know, essentially what is working best for the bank. So usually that number that they're giving you for a mortgage or a car on what you can afford doesn't have anything to do with what is best for you financially or personally. It has to do with what is going to work best for the lender. So and the that's, bank doesn't always know yeah. as we've learned from SVB. <laughs> yeah. Then, <laughs> exactly. Or 2007, yep. eight, right? <laughs> yes. Exactly. And that's a really great example, right? Of <laughs> banks doing what was best for them and just letting the rest of us figure it out and the rest of us not really coming out winners on the other side of that. So. Absolutely. I So I love this whole discussion. I think from what I read that this is a bit of a prelude to the book you're going to be publishing in about a year. Yeah, absolutely. It, these are all of the ideas that I'm sort of working through in the book. It's called, the tentative title is You Don't Need a Budget. So... <laughs> as you have heard kind of my stance on budgeting and budget culture. So it's an investigation of budget culture and the biases that we bring into the ways that we talk about money. So those larger kind of systemic biases that we talk about a lot, but also the kind of personal biases in like our money mindset and what we think about money. And then I'm also talking through, like we talked a lot about how I approach debt just how I approach earning, spending, saving, and managing money without a budget, without the shame that comes along with budget culture. Very awesome. I can't wait to read that book when it comes out and share that with our audiences. In the meantime, where can our listeners and our viewers keep track of all things Dana Miranda? It's online and I guess anywhere else that you can help people. Well, if you see me on the street, wave and and please come talk to me about money because I will will be there for hours. But yeah, online, the best place to follow my work is at healthyrich.co. That'll take you to my Substack, where we publish stories from people sharing their experiences with money to get kind of a broader perspective. And also essays for me diving into all of these topics and kind of my take on money. And so you can subscribe to the Substack and get updates through email. So that's where I'll let you know when that book is available too. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I think this is a very enlightening and a great perspective to sort of make money a little bit easier and a little bit less judgy, which I think, especially right now for the queer community, we could all deal with a little bit more of that. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Make sure to check out more ways that Capital One can help you achieve financial well-being at CapitalOne.com. That's CapitalOne.com. Thank you, Dana, for an informative and empowering episode. We look forward to your book coming out soon. Thank you to our listeners and viewers for joining us for another episode. Here's your queer money takeaway from this episode. There's a lot of talk about mindfulness today. So do as Dana suggested and include your personal finances and your money stories in your mindfulness practices, whether that's yoga, journaling, meditation, all of the above, or something completely different. Then join us this Thursday when we talk about the most affordable LGBTQ plus friendly city to live in Ohio. And next Tuesday, when we talk about how to use protective option puts to, well, protect your portfolio. Thank you and have a great week. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.